you, you can't just write a book, right? Because nobody's going to take your book to market. And the, the bookstores, they don't know. They have so many titles. So, you know, we've spent really two or three years now of touring, setting up the, the book tours and the book signings, uh, still going to ski shows. I've since, you know, went back and revitalized uh, All Terrain Skiing. So I've relaunched All Terrain Skiing 2, the new film, Transforming the Beautiful Game is about racism in, in soccer and football. Uh, Clyde Best is the first black superstar in the TV era of uh, Premier League from the 1960s on. He played in the first division for West Ham, scored 58 goals. Uh, we're in the middle, probably a year out from finishing that project. Um, it's a hugely important project. It's, it's a very challenging project for me. It's an important story to tell um, about you know, the racism then and now. Unfortunately, we still see it now. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Whiteout, Living It, where I talk with experts in the experience of being human, those who've taken the risk to realize their dreams and live fully. Today, I think you'll say that that is exactly the case with Dan Egan. He was a pioneer, along with his brother in extreme sports, an international ambassador of sports, we'll call it, Dan. We'll get into that. Recently inducted into U.S. Skiing, Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame, was in 13 Warren Miller movies. He, had, he and I actually shared one movie together vertical reality he was the star i wasn't quite a star of it but i was in it uh award-winning award-winning journalist and you know what's interesting too and we're going to talk a little bit about this is he's from milton mass i'm a massachusetts guy as well but those small little mountains all of a sudden opened up a huge world and to me that's really cool so dan thanks so much for joining us great to see you chris love what you're doing it's it's a lot of fun. The funny thing is, you know, that those little mountains, like you were skiing at Blue Hills. I never skied at Blue Hills. We used to race at Bradford, which was kind of the only, the only like eastern Massachusetts mountain, I think, that I ever skied. I grew up in Mount Tom, 680 okay. feet of vertical. So in some ways, that was a big mountain compared to what you guys were starting on. What, how do you take it from that little mountain or where does the actually more appropriately where does the love of skiing start in just taking those laps on a little mountain I, you know to me i think that is where it all belongs and all begins because when you're a little tyke you don't know vertical feet you don't know how if a run is long or short you don't know if it's you know why you just know it's fun you know you're with your friends it's chaos, you're free, you can go as fast as you want. All those things, I think, are, you know, igniting passion, igniting decision-making, igniting so many characteristics in individuals. And, you know, for us, we lived on a hill as a family um, just outside of Boston. So we were sledding, snurfing, uh, skiing, you know, doing all we could on that hill building jumps up and over the driveway, landing in the neighbor's yard, like all that stuff. So when that got moved to a little ski area, Blue Hills, um, you know, we were like big resort, right? Wow, there's a lift. 
uh, there's a lot to do. So I, I think that's really the, the genesis of passion is those small areas. You're doing it at night. There's shadows. It's an adventure. You're on an old, slow lift. Uh, you mentioned Bradford, you know, uh, that's, you know, still running today, Bradford, Blue Hills, still running today. And when you think of at Blue Hills, we had Egon Zimmerman, you know, uh, a famous uh, Austrian ski instructor teaching us. So, you know, we had Austrians around us. We had accents. You know, we had all this stuff. So you felt part of something really big. It's funny that you say that because it does skiing more than anything else that I did suddenly became a much bigger world. Even even as a little kid, I mean, there was a little bit more travel going to like for me going to races or whatever. But even the connection, I didn't get some of that. Like Mount Tom was the same kind of thing where it looked like an Austrian resort. Uh, and I didn't get that until I'd actually gone to Austria and went, oh, OK, hey, now this this is what it looks like. But you do get those accents and you get connection to older people like in your in your other sports. It was kind of like you were in a two year kind of range. Mm. But in skiing, it was one of those that you ended up skiing with a whole bunch of different people. Is that what opened this sense of adventure? Did it kind of open that door to like, hey, there's going to be more and more and more and cool people and people to share it with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, my two main sports as a kid, skiing and sailing, connected me with older people. You know, I was fifth in a family of eight. So <clears throat> I was skiing with older brothers, older sisters. I was sailing with older brothers. Um surrounded by older kids and older and adults. Um, and that sense of belonging really mattered to me, you know, having my skills come up to where they were recognized was something I wanted to achieve. So pushing that limit to, <clears throat> excuse me, being recognized by that older crowd was really something. And, you know, I played soccer and baseball you know, as well, the team sports, as you mentioned, are more, you know, sort of in that age group, um, which was fine. But I liked skiing and sailing because it was a bigger world. It was a bigger adventure. Um, and it wasn't sort of like the ninth inning or the 60th minute of a soccer match and the game was over. Like, no, this thing continued and it was fun. Yeah, it, it was fun. You earned your you earned your way into it. And that's and, and it didn't matter how old you were. Like you could yeah. be, you could be a little tyke. My father was a teacher in Belchertown, Mass. And he he ran the ski club at his high school. And they one year we went up to Mount St. Anne. And I think I was like 11 and my brother was nine. And uh, and we went up to the uh, we went up to Mount St. Anne and we'd kind of looked at the trail map and we're like, we're going over here. And so we were going over there with my father with all these kids, all these high schoolers. And, and my father's like, you guys, you guys probably don't want to come over here. And, and they're like, what do you mean? Like they're, they're little kids. And we got over on this huge like bump run and it was awesome. The guy who was like all league baseball catcher ended up taking his skis off and walking down. And, you know, this kind of, it's like, it changes the perspective of where you fit in the, in the world. The Warren Miller thing, 
we've got to get to Warren Miller at this point. And your brother ended up skiing in a Warren Miller movie. And I read that your brother skied in a Warren Miller movie. And then that was sort of the gateway for you, your brother, John. How did that happen? He was found at Sugarbush, but how does, how does one, I mean, is, is this a casting call? Is this those things where we hear the, the casting agent is walking down the street and sees somebody and goes, you're going to be a star. Is this, how did it work? Yeah, well, you know, back in those days in the 70s, Warren would send a cameraman to a ski area. The cameraman would go into the marketing office and the marketing director would say, you know, hey, these are the local hot skiers. And Sugarbush at that time, you know, was a popular mountain in, in Vermont, but not like we see it today. You know, all the ski areas are not what they were right back then it's it's a small group it's a there aren't many everyday skiers you know skiing ski bums the ski bums all knew each other and that gang of 17 to 20 year olds they were formidable you know they were trying to improve they were winning the local ski bum races winning the mogul contest uh, doing pushing the limits and pushing each other, and John was one of those one of those guys that got selected. Um, I think in his first movie he jumps over a building or or like a a table or you know a a, a picnic table, um, and the shot is him throwing a twister going over the table. Um, and you know I'm six years younger, so I'm fourteen maybe till twelve sitting in a Warren, sitting in a movie theater in Boston going, that's my brother. Like that was a mind really like, how did, you know, we were all wondering the same thing. How did this happen? But John just had a lot of energy. He's a natural born athlete. Um, I always say, you know, John wakes up in shape. He, I've never really known him to work out. Um, he didn't play team sports, but he could have been a gymnastic gymnast. He could have done anything he wanted. Uh, he was a fit, thin, lean, still his guy. And, um, you know, there he was. And he had that tenacity to get better. Um, so when he left the house in 1976, he was an average skier at best. He had a pair of Hansons and Olin, one of, you know, Olin Mark IVs. And that that was it. Um, and then here it is three years later, maybe he's not only in a Warren Miller film, he's on the Peugeot Pro Circuit. He's on the Saab World Pro Mogul Tour. We're like, what is happening? Yeah. And that's and that was just his passion to continue to get better. Uh, how did, I mean, it's just, it's, it's mind boggling just because Warren was so big in my eyes. I assume in your eyes, it was just because he was really the first ski movie guy and the cool stuff, right? The, the steep stuff, the you know, twisters. I mean, you say twisters, I mean, you're you're hitting me because we're contemporaries, right? So you're hitting me where where I grew up. The the Mark IVs, the Hansons, the these kinds of things. The the twisters. I mean, I think that was probably the first thing that I ever did. Uh, the first trick because it was like hot dog was freestyle was a, such a huge part of that time. What when you look at that though? I mean, it's like. Was that then a gateway to something that, that was that much bigger? I mean, Warren, Peugeot, Saab, these kinds of things of like, 
this could be a living, this could be a pursuit like this. I might get to do what I want to do for the rest of my life. Yeah, well, the pro tour, the pro race tour used to come to Neshoba Valley, little Neshoba Valley. Uh, like 495, Western, yeah. 495, right in Massachusetts. And John stayed at the house. He was competing in the race. And he was going to the race that morning. I was going to eighth grade, right? I was going to school. And John's in his padded sweater. He's in his padded pants. And he says to me, Dan, I'm going to work today. And as a eighth grader, I was like, well, that, I, I remember the day he told me. He was going to work and that had a big impact on me. Um, and, you know, at the same time, he's racing against Gary Adgate. He's racing against Peter Dodge. I had their posters in my room. I had put, you know, Peter Dodge just now retired from the Dartmouth ski team as their head coach. I mean, he's a legend. Gary Adgate was up here at Loon ski racing and he was the star at the time. And, you know, John would, you know, tell me, you know, of course, no cell phones, no texting. But when we would get together, you know, I, I was within three tenths of a second of Gary Agate. I'd be like, what? Like, I had been a racer. So I knew like, wow, that's you're in there. You're doing it. Um, or he'd tell me, you know, I made it to the round of 16. I made it to the round of eight. I got knocked out by so-and-so. And I'd be like, wow. So there was uh, something there. And, you know, of course, he's my older brother. And I aspired to him you know my oldest brother uh bob who i sailed with and skied with um was on the s ski patrol um at, at where he went to school at norwich university they had their own ski area so i'm hanging out with the ski patrollers uh you know we're all talking about our other brother on the tour when bobby got out of college he went and managed uh one of the ski markets in Boston. So, you know, the ski market was an institution in, in the area. It, you know, when it closed it, it was the biggest retailer in the U S and I go to work turning screws in the shop at 14, 15. So I'm surrounded by this. Um, and yeah, it became something. I, I always say that skiing was the first time that I realized I could be an expert at something. Um, particularly when you work the sales floor, you know, somebody would ask me, a kid, a teenager, what did I think of this ski? What was the right boot? And I had an answer and it was convincing. I don't know if it was right or wrong, but I was convincing. And that person bought that product. And I was like, wow, I have influence. And that, that had a big effect as well. A big effect. And looking at the pro tours as well, it was it was so different, right? Because if you're looking on the racing side, like on the amateur racing side, it really was amateur. Yeah. But the pro tour, there were there were sponsors all over the place. Like they had their knee pads with sponsors on them. And yeah. Yeah, no, it was. And you know, so you know, you talk about Warren Miller, um, and of course there was Barry Moore, right? Mm -hmm. Made movies. And the star of the Barrymore films uh, was Joey Cordeaux, the mogul skier. Mm -hmm. And Joey, Sun Valley, Idaho, you know, and Warren would put him in his movies too. And they would always say, Joey Cordeaux, world champion, Joey Cordeaux. And when John wasn't on the pro race tour, he was on the pro mogul tour competing against Joey Cordeaux. 
And I was like, this can't be real. Like I'm watching Joey Cordo. We all wanted to ski like Joey Cordo. He was, he was like water flowing down the hill. He was smooth tips connected to the ground. You know, his air was unbelievable. And back then it was a little wild, you know, but it was fascinating to watch. And so here now I'm like, my older brother is competing and traveling with Joey Cordo, Gary Agate, Peter Dodge. Uh, he's 19, 20, 21 years old. And, uh, you know, my mom's looking at this and she's forbidding me to hang out with him, right? It's not age appropriate for you to hang out with this guy. So, so like that made me want to do it more really i'm sure it did yeah exactly it's not age appropriate you're like okay i am in 100 here we go let's let's do it but that's it's weird when your world opens up that way right you started at a little mountain and then and your brother's this entree into a much bigger more exciting world or a world that in some ways could have been a world that was on television yeah yeah, that suddenly is real. And you're like, oh, he belongs in there. Yeah. So if he does, I'm related to I could possibly belong in there, too. How early did you start working on trying to get into the Warren Miller movie? Well, you know, I was hanging out, you know, my mom forbid me to go. So, of course, I started running away to go. Uh, taking the Greyhound bus out of South Station in Boston and getting off in Montpelier and coming home on Sunday nights and getting in a lot of trouble and, you know, those sorts of things. But And then doing it again the next week. Doing it again, you know, just uh, doing it all over again. Um, and my brother Bobby was complicit because he would drive me up and pick me, you know, pick me up and do those sort of things. And, uh, you know, I with the older brothers, it was like, yeah, you can you can hang out but there was a, a sort of a standard, you know, can you, can you do it? Are you, the, are you good enough? Right. And whether that standard was real or in my mind, I, I saw it and I wanted to do it, but, and I remember, you know, but from, see, for me, I wanted to be a soccer player. I was really into soccer and had gone to college to play ball. I got recruited to play at a pretty high level multi time national championship program and i really wanted to play and i was and the co-captain right at the end i was yeah and and i i wanted to i wanted to play there but i you know academically it was challenging my my lifestyle didn't actually add up to getting good grades um so i took a winter off and to ski bum and you know first first person i call with this decision is john and he he he's not hundred percent on board. He's like, you need to finish school, dude. Like, what are you doing? And um, he goes, you can come up here, but if you, if you don't go back, you have to, he made me promise I would go back to school. Um, and that winter I was skiing uh, as a ski bum every day. And there was a world cupper, a world mogul, a kid on the world cup mogul circuit. He was a foreigner training at Sugarbush and I would ski with him. And at first I was a little intimidated. And then I was like, well, wait a minute. I'm skiing on longer skis than this kid. I'm turn for turn with him, you know, down Spillsville, Stein's Run, Upper FIS, all the classics at Sugarbush. And I'm thinking to myself, I, I think I got him. I, I think I could take him, you know, head to head. 
Now I'm not saying this to anybody, but this is going on in my head. I'm like, no, no, I, th I think I am. And, but then the standard was John, right? So my ski bum buddies was like, but you're not your brother. Right. And they were right. I, I wasn't, you know, he, my brother's legendary at the time and his feats at Sugarbush have still never been duplicated. Um, and so I was like, okay, but I've got this guy in my sights um, and I'm aiming there. So that's when it started to come to me. Okay. I think I have this, I think I can do it. Um, that winter I buy a people's express plane ticket one way to California it was 75 bucks. This doesn't sound very good as far as going back to school is concerned. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I go to Cali and I go to, I go to Squaw and I see what John, John had lived in California and lived at Squaw. And I, I meet Scott Schmidt and I meet Tom Day and I meet Robbie Hontoon and Kevin Andrews and all these guys that were like beginning their careers. And I'm like, wow, this is where they are. This is what's going on. And then that year I thumbed back to Denver from Tahoe, went to ski area to ski area, just me and my skis. I was at, I, was, I went to the uh, World Mogul Championships at Snowbird and saw Joey Cordeaux and saw these guys compete. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is a real show. This is what they're doing. I, I see it. I, I was wanted to enter. I didn't, but I, I really wanted to put my money down. I didn't have any money. Um, so, uh, you know, I like hot dog. This is like hot dog, the movie kind of thing. Oh yeah. It was full on, you know, <clears throat> I'll tell you a little story. I get all the way to Denver I got a ride to Denver. I got picked up coming out of steamboat by a guy who drove me to Denver. And uh, he goes, where do you want to go? I go, well, just drop me. Stapleton at the time was basically in the city, the airport. So drop me at the hotel because I know I can get on the airport shuttle eventually and go to the airport. So I get on the airport shuttle and the shuttle driver goes, you didn't stay at the hotel last night. And I go, nah, you know, and I start telling him my story. I'm thumbing and all this sort of thing. I didn't have any money. The guy gave me his entire tip jar, 12 bucks. He gave me his tip jar. And he's like, kid, here's, you know, here's some money. So I'm like, well, 12 bucks, I'm rich, you know? So I, I walk into the uh, Stapleton Airport. <clears throat> There's some guy I'd never seen before in an orange robe, and he's selling a book. It was six bucks. I bought a Harry Krishna book for six bucks. <laughs> and uh, that was my reading on the way home back to boston and going back to school for for the summer um and that's kind of where i was at the time <clears throat> just going with the flow just going with the flow and thumbing the romantic part of being a ski bum of thumbing from place to place of buying a one-way ticket to california was that part of the allure as well did you was it just like i'm so passionate about what i want to do that I'll do whatever it takes to do it? Or did you think that there was any progression that was happening? Anything anything that might be in the future kind of deal? You know, I was just living moment to moment. I didn't have this grand vision. <clears throat> when I hear kids today say, I have a passion for this and I'm going to do that. I'm always like, I just did it. Like you, I didn't explain it to anybody. I didn't, I couldn't have written it down. I just want to go skiing. 
and $75, I could afford it. I'd worry about the rest later. You know, um, I, I ate at two for one, you know, we'd go to the, the drink parties, two for one drinks and apre and eat the hors d'oeuvres. You like, that's where, that's where I was, my head was at. Um, I would hike up, you know, I'd be in Aspen and hike up the trail to the chairlift where they didn't check tickets and go ski, ski Ajax for the day. Um, and you know, those sort of things, whatever it took. Um, and I never thought about it. Like I'm pursuing my passion. I just wanted to go skiing and I knew I had to be back in time for summer school. Like that was it. Um, the, and I, I say in my book, you know, opening day for the Red Sox meant I needed to get back to the East. So whenever opening day for the Red Sox came, I saw that in the newspaper. I'd be like, I got to go back. And I would like figure out how to get back East. Luckily then it was a little bit later. It was usually in April then. Now they're opening in March, right? It's so. good. It would ruin any ski bum's career right now. <laughs> exactly. To be a Red Sox fan, but that it, 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 it as, as painful and educational as that can be, but we've had a lot of winners lately as well you weren't alone in this where you are were you alone I and mean, were there other people who are doing the same kind of stuff that you were doing well there's definitely what i've always called the tribe of of uh of ski bumps snowboarders skiers you know at the time there were no snowboarders of course but there was a there were people that were couch surfing there were people that understood what you were doing you know there you know thumbing was not strange so if you were thumbing with skis, you got picked up because I had one guy tell me, I picked you up because you have skis. And I, if you're going to, you know, rob me, you couldn't get out of my car quick enough with your skis and you'd probably never leave your skis. You know, uh, I had another guy pick me up because his kid was out thumbing around the country. And this guy wanted to talk to some, another kid who was thumbing. And what was the experience that to get a glimpse into his own son's life? Um, so I think it was a freer time. Uh, and that sort of thing was going on. I mean, I would stay at friends of friends' houses. I would get kicked out of friends of friends' houses. I would move on. Um, you know, at Steamboat, I was just, I didn't know anybody, so I was stumbling around Steamboat, and I saw the ski jump in town, and I hiked up there, and it was at, near the end of the season. It was closed, and I just thought, I'll stay here in the starter shack, and I put out my sleeping bag and my, and I camped out there for a week in the starting shack of Halston Hill at the top of the jump. And I would take the bus up, go skiing for the day, go for the two for one party at the holiday inn, and then, you know, go sleep at the top of the jump. Did you get to, I mean, you get to know people and know the country as well. I mean, you're going, because in, in some ways it's almost like it can be relatively sterile in some ways now, right? Where it's like, I'm going to X place and I'm going to fly in and I'm going to get a shuttle to go up to the hotel and you're in and you're out, but you're in, in the midst of it with everybody. I mean, that must've been as much of an education as the education you were going back to the East coast for Red Sox to, to start though, I would imagine. Oh yeah. I mean, it was hugely eye-opening. Um, you know, it was scary. Um, I had to persevere, you know, um, it sounds fun and it sounds glamorous, but it was cold in that shack, you know, um, and, you know, those sorts of things. So, you know, you question yourself, um, you, you wonder, do you have what it takes? Can you make it to the next place? Um, 
and and the, I was getting an education and and still, you know, the friends I made along the way, uh, you know, some you don't remember, some reach out to you years, decades later. Hey, I met you once, you know, those sorts of things. Um, and I think it really just shaped my my vision perception perspective of the world, you know. But I, I go back to my childhood and being in that big family, my mom's strategy during the summer was just tip the house over and get all the kids out of the house, right? Just like pour, pour the kids out onto the streets. And my thing was sailing. So I would walk a quarter mile to the train, take the, to the trolley, take the trolley to the train. And how old were you when you started doing this? I did that at six. At six? Six, six years old. I would take the tra train into Boston, get on a bus, walk a mile to the South Boston Yacht Club, which is not a blue blazer yacht club. Trust me, it's a drinking hardcore yacht club. And in the 70s, Southie was a tough spot. And, you know, I have to navigate those street corners between the bus store, bus stop and, and, and the yacht club. I would sail all day. I'd sail all day. My mom's instruction was be home for dinner. Like, that's what she told me to do. My oldest brother, Bob, you know, we had a little boat that we raced and he'd tell me, sail it down the coast. We're racing at this yacht club in the, you know, over the weekend, it's a Friday afternoon. I'll meet you after work and drive you home. He goes, you might want to leave at one o'clock because there's some other kids, other boats leaving at that time. Well, I was the youngest kid by far. You know, I'm six, seven, eight. I'm in a 24 foot boat by myself trying to keep up with teenagers and men. <clears throat> to sail down the coast. So <clears throat> these sort of things, getting into scraps, they weren't, it wasn't new to me, getting into a scrap, getting into difficult situations, navigating my way out. Um, that I hit things with the boat. I ran it, ran aground, you know, sails got tied in knots, but you know, my brother was like, yeah, hey, we'll fix it. And we went on. So that was my experience from a very young age. Um, so <clears throat> the idea of, going to a ski area. Yeah. It meant nothing. It was fun. It was bigger than blue Hills. It was bigger than blue Hills. You talk about carrying your skis. Did you have one pair of skis? I mean, we're, we're in a, a land, a world of like quiver of skis. You're racing, you're, you're skiing in the trees, you're doing bumps. Did you have one pair of skis and what did you have then? One pair of skis, uh, you know, one pair of skis. Um, and they, they were my everything, you know, they were my everything. I know that my first ski bum season in, at, in, in Tahoe, um, I had a pair of blue atomic arcs and, um, a marker bindings and most likely a pair of rear entry Solomon boots. Um, and I love those skis. And I didn't want any other skis. I, I never occurred to me that there would be other skis for con different conditions. We had one pair of skis. Um, and this is well before fat skis. I mean, there were no, well no powder skis. You skied powder on your skis. You leaned back a little. Yeah. And going all the way back to racing in high school, you know, I practiced on dull skis. I didn't sharpen my skis. Why would I sharpen my skis? I wanted to be able to edge on dull skis. So the night before I'd tune up 
And I'd feel like a hero. Like now I had tuned skis, so you better watch out. I was beating you on dull skis, but I'm showing up to the race on sharp skis. So that was always the mentality, like pile it on. Um, and at Squaw, you back in those days, you know, KT22, it isn't what it was today. Uh, you know, it was a double chairlift. The fingers rarely got skied. Um, it was, there wasn't the, the huck fest that you see today. And, you know, you would kind of build your way through these things to ski. And I knew that if I skied something alone, if I went in there by myself and made a decision to ski it, that's when I would quote unquote master it. If I went in with my friends would be exploring it. But when I went alone, I was making my own decisions. So I was the coffee guy, the morning coffee guy at the clock tower cafe. And I'd gone into, as you go up the KT-22 and look to the right, can't remember the name of one of the finger shoots, but I, it was very narrow, almost never got skied. And I went in there the day before and fell. And as I tumbled through, my pole got stuck and it was in the middle of the chute. Everybody could see it from the lift. So in the morning, you know, I'm giving all the ski patrol and the ski instructors their coffee at the Clock Tower Cafe. And they're ribbing me. Hey, you're the kid. You're the you're the new guy. Your pole's in the middle of the chute. Well, I'm from Boston, right? I'm a wise ass. So my my thing is go get it. You, you're going to tease me? Why don't you go get it? I could use some help. Why don't you go get it? Of course, nobody, nobody would go get it. And, you know, I wait the week and I get my, you know, I go back up there with two poles. I ski down. I grab it on the way by and ski out. And that changed the conversation around around Tahoe that day and uh, in the mornings. I didn't catch shit anymore from the ski patrol, uh, the instructors. Yeah, that is that that's the way you earn your your space. I mean, you've been doing it since the time you were you were a little kid. But that is that the the part where does the where does the because you're doing the extreme stuff already, but then. How does doing the extreme stuff and then filming the extreme stuff, does that change the equation of what you're doing, how you're doing the, 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 the celluloid balls kind of thing that they talk about, right? Yeah. Yeah. The Kodak courage, the, um, you know, I, as a ski bomb, I made fun of the movie guys. Like we would ruin their shots. We would cut in front of the photographer. They had fancy clothes. They had new I didn't have any of that stuff. I, ha I had rags and I had one pair of skis and I skied with the hardcores and we kind of poo-pooed it. You know, I, John and I had filmed together in 1985 for Warren at Sugarbush, uh, but it didn't really go anywhere. I don't, I don't know that it ever made the film. Um, I, I got to meet the cameraman and ski form and I liked it, but that was it. When I was a ski bum, you know, serving coffee, I didn't really have a vision of a pro career. I, I was just skiing. I loved it. I was going to go and I saw the guys. I saw Hank DeVries. I, I saw Hontoon and I saw Schmidt. I saw what they were doing, but it wasn't something I was doing. Uh, and I knew I was skiing more than those guys. They were standing around. And in 86, the winter of 86, 87, uh, I went the school I was going to. They got fed up with my my antics. Uh, on a lot of levels, but one of them, so they 
kind of gave me an ultimatum. We want you to graduate and we want you to do it like sooner than later or get out of here. And so I went to school May to May. I had 12 months. I'm going to get this thing done. I did a 12-month stint and I, I was caught up with my class, played my last year of soccer, knew you know, pro soccer was not going to happen for me. I'm too short. I'm too slow. And that winter, John got called back to Warren Miller. And him and Tom Day were going to Verbier with the famed cameraman, Gary Nate, who I'm sure you know. I know Gary and, well. Yeah. And they were going to Verbier. I was on spring break and they, John flew out to, to Tahoe to, fill, to warm up. And of course he was, you know, he had, he was a big deal. Tom Day was a big deal. And I was a ski bum and I was taking the winter off from ski bumming, but I went during spring break and I, John said, you know, kick around. Maybe, maybe you can come with the film crew. Maybe you can, we'll take, we're taking photos. So I had this lime green one piece CB zip up suit. I mean, it was, and it had, nobody wanted this thing. It had been in the, the front window of the ski market in Boston. So it was like faded on one side and, but this was like, I dressed up that day, right? I dressed up in my lime green suit. And, uh, you know, Hank DeVray looks at me and goes, no, you're like, you're not coming. Like, we can't shoot that. You're, you're out of your mind. And those guys went off and they they got to be ski stars that day and shoot photographs and all that stuff. And I got left behind. And, you know, I didn't like being left behind. Um, so John, you know, he's does has this big feature segment in the Warren Miller film. He's skiing with John Faulkner, Tom Day. They're in Verbier. After that, John goes and spends two months in, in Chamonix ski bumming. And when he comes home in the spring, he's got what he calls the European hangover. He doesn't want to go back to work. And I'm out of college and I'm enjoying the European hangover because we're windsurfing and we're hanging out. And I'm like this, I see something different now because it happened for him. And um, the next winter, um, I, John and I went on the pro tour together. We went back to the World Pro Mogul Tour. And uh, as the Egan Brothers from Vermont, sponsored by your mama and my mama. And uh, we had no money. And in between stops, we would go to California, to Tahoe. And I made John call Warren Miller their 800 number is 1-800-RAW-FILM, right? So I never forgot that number. Finally, they got so tired of us calling, they sent the intern up to film us. And that intern went back to the office that day and said, no, these guys are legit. Like, together, there's really something there. And the next, next thing we know, we're off on location together, and we were the Egan brothers. And really never, never looked back. Never look back. Does that was that as transformational then as it is now in terms of like in terms of making a living or were you in movies but still you know it's still being the ski bum still going to the the two for one drinks and and getting the get living off of peanuts and pretzels or whatever it was right yeah I mean we were still ski bums we were still living on couches we were. You live like a king on on the shoot on location, 
you know, get fed, get a hotel, thought it was awesome. We had sponsors. We we got sponsored right away. Right when we got on the Pro Tour, we started to pick up sponsors. We made the North Face Extreme team. It was Scott Schmidt, the Egans, Robbie Huntoon, Kevin, uh, Kevin Andrews, Tom Day. Uh, we were the original North Face guys. We stumbled into that. Um, the tryout was go up to Alpine Meadows and jump off cliffs all day. And I could do that. And halfway through the day, I said to John, how am I doing? He goes, has anybody asked you to leave? I go, nope. He goes, you're doing great. So just keep doing it. And we, you know, that day we signed the North Face. We later signed with Vocal. Um, but I had a business degree. Yeah, I had an undergraduate business degree. And um, I think it was the following winter, John took me to my first SIA show. He had been a few times. I had never been. It was in Vegas. It was a party, right? And um, um, he said, Go, you went to that school. You went to that. His exact words were, you went to that fancy college. Go into that trade hall and make us some damn money. That's what he told me. <laughs> and that's where the ski market came back in a big way because I had been working at the ski market since I was 14, 15. And all those reps had grown in the industry. Now they're marketing directors, regional sales directors, all those sort of things. They knew of the Egan's because of our just our th authentic ski bumming. And they knew John had been on the tour in the 70s and in the movies in the 80s and those sort of things. So I just lined up meetings with companies that had headquartered in Boston and dealt with the ski market. I was just kind of my thought. And I walked out of a Fisher Skis meeting, fully sponsored. And what does fully sponsored mean? Or what did it mean we, at that time? Well, that's exactly what my brother said when I gave him the contract. He goes, what, what is this? I go, they're going to pay us. He said, money? I said, yeah, money. He goes, what the hell did you tell him? And I said, I told him we were the Egan brothers and we we're going to travel around the world and make movies. He goes, good. Tell the next guy that. So tell the next guy that. And that's what I did. I had, we raised enough money in that visit to SIA that year to make our own film. Um, and, you know, VHS was a big thing. Oh, yeah. Back then, not every skier household had VCRs. We had to find skiers that owned VCRs to buy the movies. And But I knew that if we had our own film, um, you know, we had leverage, we could deliver to sponsors and I didn't raise enough money to make like a proper video, but I did raise enough money to travel and I raised enough money to pay somebody to shoot still photos. So Ned Gillette was a big hero of mine as a kid. And I used to go to his slideshows of Nepal and Everest. And he, he had one projector slideshow and I saw, and I listened to his story. And I knew Warren and I knew Warren was a storyteller and I knew Ned Gillette was doing something over here. So with that spring, I took all my 35 millimeter slides and I found a guy in Boston at the Boston Film and Video Foundation that had six slide projectors. And we took, we made a six projector slideshow and we animated slides and we blew slides up and we flashed and we dissolved and we cut. And I said, 
when the thing was done, I said, pointed at that wall and I took a VHS camera and I filmed it and I made a video. And I took that video to Fisher Skis and I delivered it. I go, I promised you a film. Here's my VHS. Here's the master. Duplicate it. They said, great, we're going to send it to every retailer in the country. And they did. And that was uh, the Worldwide and Wild was the name of the video. Um, if you look at it today on YouTube, you'll freak out like this thing. Like at the time it was cutting edge, right? John and I narrate it. It's hokey. Uh, but there it is. And I entered that into the uh, Crested Butte Film Ski Film Festival. And we won our category. Best new film. And there it was, like, proof of concept. Um, so we also were in the, you know, the, the Warren Miller film. We were in the North Face film. So I, I went to the North Face and said, I want to sell your videos. So I started a distribution company. I went to Warren Miller and said, Warren, I want to sell your videos. Warren was a filmmaker. He didn't know what to do with videos. He goes, What's, what territory? I go, east of Mississippi. He goes, it's yours. I mean, I was getting a commission on every VHS tape sold east of Mississippi from a catalog. And, you know, I was on my way because now we were skiing in the movies. I had sponsorship from the sponsors and I had a distribution. And then I would go to ski shows, sell my videos, sell North Face Films or Warren Miller. We had a little roadshow going and just kept going. And, and some of that you were talking about in the book that that Bernie Weisel was uh, put up your film like he's like yeah let's let's put this in was it that first slideshow film yeah. that that he put in there with the so in all of his theaters because ski shows were were so big back then and looking for content and something cool. I mean Bernie Weisel, great guy. I was just with him last week. Um, you know he knew we were ski market kids, right? And Ski Market was his anchor retailer. So if they were going to buy our videos, Bernie was like, as long as they're being sold at the at, through the retailer, what do you want to do? And I said, how about a theater? He put me in Denver. He put me in Philly. He put me in Baltimore. He put me in Boston. I had a theater. Uh, Alan Schoenberger was doing his ballet act on the moving carpet. I had the theater and we were a circus. And... Like Warren, I narrated live. So I didn't just plug and play. I played the slide projectors. I brought the sick projectors. They moved. You heard them clicking. I had a microphone. I was telling our story. Occasionally, John would come and he would tell his story during the thing. And outside that theater, we we're selling, you know, Day Glow, Egan Brother t-shirts and videos and stickers, our Egan Brother stickers and things like that. So... That's how it went. You made it work. Is it is a little is a little surprising to be able to look back on it now and figure out how how these things kind of came together to coalesce in a way that allowed you to continue to ski. But it became something a little bit more, didn't it? I mean, like you were you were telling a story. I mean, when you're talking about all the all the slide projectors going at the same time. Like the visual for me is that you were like a visual DJ. Yeah. I mean, took on a life of its own. And, you know, my parents, 
you know, they would always say to me, you know, we didn't really ever expect you kids to make a living at skiing. And, but they would emphasize like making a living. Like, are you real? Because if you're real, you're, you're, this will support you. And if it doesn't, you're not real. And they, they set a high bar there. Like this thing had to work or I needed to get a job and a real job, like a career, like a job. Yeah. Like a job. I mean, I was, I, I joke now, like I've always, you know, look, I was a USA paper guy. I delivered papers. I filled the blue boxes with USA Today's. I was a Petrid farm bread guy. I, um, I was a substitute teacher. I was coaching soccer. I was a sailing instructor. I was working while this was happening, but I was pushing the ball forward as I was shipping videos around the world uh, and set in my distribution business. But here's the thing. And this is what I always tell kids today, X game athletes, Olympians. Look, do you see what's happening around you? What's the, what's the technology of your time? How are you going to take advantage of this? Right. I was, I saw VHS tapes. I saw distribution. I had gone to school. My professors told me distribution is key. If you don't control distribution, you're never going to make it right. Cable TV at the time was not, they weren't national. There was New England Sports Network, Madison Square Network, Sunshine Network. There was all these regional guys. I, I being a Boston guy, right? I got introduced to uh, my, I needed an accountant. She happened to work at Nesson, New England Sports Network. She said, you should have your own show on Nesson. Well, I said, yeah, of course. Why don't I already? You know, like, yeah, let's do it. And so I became a host on Nesson and shortly afterwards launched my own show sponsored by the ski market, of course, right? Sponsored by these companies. And Nesson said, well, why don't we distribute? And I said, yes, knowing that's the key. We went to Sunshine Network. We went to Madison Square Network. We went to Colorado. We went to, you know, these different, went to California. When they merged, I had a national show. And I was grandfathered in on that merger. And, you know, it took a while for that to become Fox Sports, right? Um, but it happened. And I was there renegotiating my contract. Hey, I'm grandfathered, reminding people I'm grandfathered in. And I controlled all this ad time. Well, I started selling that. Subaru, Jeep, um, you know, my good friend Rory Strunk launched Resort Sports Network and RSN and I learned from him and Carl Labby, the guy who was behind Greg Stump and sold all the Greg Stump swatch sponsorships. I In the summer, that's who I hung out with, Carl Labby, uh, Rory Strunk. They were selling television. I figured it out. I could make a proposal. I could make a pitch. I wasn't afraid of the phone call. And I went for it. When you were in your introduction to your book, you're talking about the first time you jumped off a cliff. Up at uh, up at Mad River Glen, and, and you you describe it as the eternal now, that that moment when you are just so in the moment. Is that a big part of what it expanded to the business of the sport, to what you're doing, to the point where, in some ways, could you could you do? anything else like i mean obviously you're a super talented guy right you could go 
and you could get a job and you could do a job. But at the same time, it's kind of like you're you're living what you're supposed to live. Is that is staying this in this the eternal now where I mean, even and, and I want to I want to connect that to something that John said when you guys got inducted into the Hall of Fame, right, that that you need to be able to you need to have something new to keep your career going. Yeah, because it, it never really ends. And so is the eternal now like like the appeal and and the thing that keeps you going? How how is how does that all how do you reconcile it all? Well, it, it's something right. Like I was I took advantage of VHS. I took advantage of cable. I missed digital. It happens. Right. You can't hit everything. I was so entrenched in television. When people start talking about Internet, I'm like, no, no, no. You don't understand. I have Suzuki. I've got Taco Bell. I've got Red Bull sponsoring my stuff on TV. You don't understand why. When my cameraman started telling me we're not going to we need chips, not tape. I said, you're crazy. Buy a tape. We shoot film and tape. We don't shoot what am I going to have hard drives? What do you, I, I thought they were nuts. So I missed it. Right. My, the TV show crashes that nine 11 crushed me, you know, Oh eight crushed me. Like I ran into some big issues. Right. And I'm left there going, what next? Like, what do I have and what am I going to do? Right. And am I attached to the past or am I dragged down by the past? Because I had seen during the top dot, dot com boom, so many people, entrepreneurs, my friends, we sold it. We got stock options like they were partying like there was no tomorrow. But then they got their companies back. Right. And and or they did sell it, but then they didn't know what to do in life because they had done this one thing. And could they do it again? And really, quite honestly, not many of them ever did. Um, they became consultants or whatever. That didn't look good to me. I had never built something to sell. I was building think products to sell, services to sell, but I didn't build a company to sell. I was, this was my life. So I had to take a hard look at those times and say, how do I, what do I bring forward? How do I let go of what I did? It's not moving me forward. And how do I move forward? And I think at those times in life that ju those junctures are when you know, the, I've been my most creative, I, where I retreat, I spend some quiet time, uh, sometimes months, um, contemplating, thinking, talking to people, letting it saturate, letting it saturate, uh, and being honest. Like, the problem was when the TV show crashed, you know, look, I had a television show for over 12 years nationally. Like that was quite an accomplishment, right? Letting go with that would have been, you'd be like, it took a while to realize, no, no, you did it. Now be proud and go, but stop trying to resurrect it. Nobody's interested. So that, 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 that was a mind shift for me to get there. And, um, and I've had to do it. And for me, I, you know, I jokingly say I make my living doing what my parents taught me to do before I was 10, skiing, sailing, soccer, right? And so I went and became the middle school soccer coach 
at the, you know, for the Holderness Hawks. And I had, I was fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth co-ed teams and um, kind of did that for a while and kind of settled into the community uh, that I hadn't been a part of before. Uh, I remember getting called into the principal's office and the guy saying, you know, 23 games. I'm like, yeah. He's like, you're playing three high school teams. I go, I know we're beating them. He's like, you know, all these bus trips and kids are getting dismissed from schools. I'm like, yeah, I know. You, you know, the Holden Hawks were a soccer factory, you know, and he's like, this is middle school, dude. You know, <laughs> And uh, he's like, maybe we need to like gear this back. I'm like, you know, we're beating those high school JV teams. Like, what do you, these kids are proud to be Holden Hawks. There's third graders that want to aspire to be on the Holden Hawks. And that was really good for me on a lot of levels, you know, it was like, um, kids and coaching and it, it reignited a whole bunch of stuff in me. So I just started doing that. I started a sailing school. I, I did other things that moved me forward. Because there's, there's a question. I mean, you guys did so many first descents. You were, I mean, the, the sort of international sports ambassador in some ways, I guess that was my term more than your term. Right. But it's, but but when you said, hey, like, let's follow what's going on with CNN, like the, the geopolitical part of it, the geographical part of it, sneaking into places, sneaking into Lebanon to go ski, uh, you know, Elbrus, obviously, that's a huge part of your story and getting caught in a, in a near death kind of experience where you go, I'm the strongest guy out here and I'm not nearly as strong as Mother Nature you get to a point where where you might want to might not want to write those physical checks anymore. There you go. Okay, do I have to keep pushing it and keep pushing it and keep pushing it? Is that part of the decision making too? Is is do I have to do it all physically, or can I build something that creates a bit of a legacy? Well, for sure. I mean, look, when I was a kid hanging out with my brother's friends at Sugarbush, all those guys, what I saw were strong, independent businessmen. They all went on to do amazing things on their own without edu traditional education. And they all said to me the same thing. You've used your brain. Your physical is great, but you're going to need your brain. So they encouraged my education. They encouraged me to learn. Right. And, and, at school, I learned about distribution. I learned about how to raise money. I learned about sales and I learned about all that stuff to bring it together. So for me, the ski career was always more about the totality of it. Uh, physically, I could launch off a cliff. I could ski powder runs on straight skis. I, I, I was in good shape. I, I could do it. But to make it all work, we had to think beyond the snow, right? We had to pull that together. Uh, L. Bruce changed me. You know, 11 people died 1990 on May 2nd in So what Russia. were you doing on L. Bruce? Can you tell the story for the, uh, for the audience? Yeah, it was a sponsored trip by Degree 7. And we were there with an international expedition to climb Mount L. Bruce, one of the seven summits of the world. A lot of, not a lot of people know this, that Mount L. Bruce kills more people than Everest. Uh, now, I, I would challenge that fact maybe today because of the overcrowding on Everest, but at the time, 
because of the weather coming in off the Black Sea, it, it, there's a lot of weather at Ever Elbrus. And this and is 95, right? 1990. 1990, still, sorry. Still sorry. the USSR. I mean, it. we had, you know, done the things you said. We we jumped off the Berlin Wall. We we I was fascinated about the Eastern Bloc, fascinated about communism and what was going on and what was changing. But that day, uh, John and I got separated. We didn't, John didn't want to go for the summit. Uh, Tom Day, the cameraman, didn't want to carry his gear to the summit. I wanted to go to the summit. I, I had a career aspiration. I wanted to summit. I, and I got, I ignored uh, the turnaround time. I pushed on to the summit. I was young and uh, ended up getting lost in the storm for 32 hours. And it's 18,500 feet? Is that what? Yeah, 18,000 yeah. feet. When the Russian found me and saved my life, it was it was probably 17,000 feet when he found me in my snow cave alone and brought me back to life. I believe that I was dead when he found me. Um, he slapped me around. He, he was out in the storm and he noticed that my ice axe was uh, outside my snow cave and he dug until he found me. Um, and the next day, he and I rescued 14 people. Um, but that experience, which I outline in my book, you know, changed me because now I just wasn't a, I was fallible now. I wasn't invincible. I, I knew there were consequences. My friend had died. You know, things, John and I, th over 32 years later, have never spoken one-on-one -on -one about this trip. Really? Yeah. So it's had a lasting effect. The trauma has had a lasting effect. You know, I'm always amazed when people on that trip or family members don't call me on May 2nd and say, we're glad you're alive, but it didn't affect them. They, they weren't affected by the trauma. They have no idea how it affected me, but it affected me. And, you know, I, I had to deal with my own uh, substance abuse issues. Uh, I had to take a hard look at my life and I had to ask myself, I got a second chance here. What am I going to do with it? You know, I, I was, I met my guardian angel. I saw the bright light, the six foot four Russian changed all that. And I'm back now I'm here. And that had a big effect on my career had a big effect on uh, the focus of the, my narration of my films. If you go back and listen to my films in the nineties is a spiritual element to those narrations. Um, I was discovering things about myself and, and what I was doing. And I decided to change that. I at, you know, in the nineties, I had series of knee injuries um, and coming back from those knee injuries was difficult. Uh, John and I had brotherly issues. They were, they were tearing at me. And so I kind of pack it all in and, and stop in the mid nineties. Um, I moved to New Hampshire. I became the director of skiing for a group called ski 93, all the highway, all the ski areas on 93. I, I did what I knew how to do. I raised money. I sold sponsorships. I brought the pro tour in. I, I brought Warren Miller in. I just used, you know, and raised the profile of New Hampshire skiing. And that was a good spot for me. You know, it was a good place for me to kind of settle in and, 
Um, so, you know, it was a gear shift and, but it showed me that I could shift gears, that I wasn't just Dan Egan, the skier. I dealt with, you know, I, I counsel today, top athletes, what Warren Miller athletes, X game athletes, Olympians on how to transition from athlete to, to living <laughs> to careers. You know, it's a hard thing to do. You know, it. it's a hard thing to do. It's, you know, I mean, I tell people all the time, it was more difficult for me to retire from competitive sport than it was to break my back. My identity was more challenged. Yeah. You know, and you think that's absolutely crazy. Yeah. But it's, but it's the truth. And the funny part is I'm rep more representative of the group than not. Yeah. A lot of people have a tough time. Making a lot of people don't, you know, if you talk to Debbie Armstrong, you know, she'll tell you it took her after she, her medal in Sarajevo. It took her 10 years, 10 years to reemerge as who you see today. And it's amazing what she's doing today. Uh, but, it, you know, it took 10 years cycle and, and you watch athletes in the cycle and they struggle with it. You know, what happened to us, which was good news, was we started our camps and our clinics and those camps and clinics got established in the 90s. Um, the did with Eric and Rob Delorier, John and I, and Dean Dicas. And really, I'm the last guy standing as far in that camp business from that group, but it laid the foundation. The extreme camps. Yeah. Extreme camps. Right. Okay. Yeah. It laid the foundation for my adventure travel trips and all my camps and all my coaching today. So uh, a lot of things morphed into other things. How were you able to get insurance for your extreme camps? <laughs> Well, it's a good question. You know, we uh, waivers, what do they mean? Seriously, you know, um, we we always marketed the camps as extreme fun. Um, and we we were, when Paul Ruff died, um, you know, jumping the cliff in South Lake Tahoe, it had, that had a big effect to me. I had just come out of Everest, Paul Ruff died. Uh, El Bruce, Paul, we lost Paul Ruff. I really wanted to teach people how to do this stuff safely and live. You know, I, I've always said that, uh, and you know, sport is designed to enhance our life, not end it. And, you know, this, in the in the Red Bull era, that's got tweaked a little bit. Progression has moved it, in my opinion, in the wrong direction where people are happy to be dying doing what they love. That's not my mantra. Uh, I'm sure it's not your mantra. Um, and there's more sports should enhance living, not take it from us. And so the camps were the foundation for that philosophy. Today, when you come ski with me, uh, it's, it's a mind game. You know, I teach skiing from the top down, not the bottom up. I want to talk to people about freeing yourself from your critical mind. How do you free yourself from judgment? You're not going to get any better judging yourself. Not going to get any better. You know, but if you can move yourself into the moment, into observation, you're going to get better uh, if you can discover your foundational negative belief and we can move you off that you won't you'll stop failing when there's pressure and are you willing to take that journey and this gets back for you to like skiing is such a huge part of the of your personal education that affects the way you ski but then also affects the way you conduct yourself throughout the rest of your life what was the what was the experience of of writing the book 
like writing with because 30 years in the white haze you wrote it with eric wilbur i know eric i mean i don't know eric he doesn't know me but i know him from from the boston globe right and so uh so from reading the boston globe i know i know who eric is and, and i know his writing how did how did you how did that how did that process work for you did you enjoy the writing you've written a lot you've told a lot of stories you are a storyteller but a but a book like that is it's, it's a journey too you got to go through that whole journey you you do i mean i i i just you know i, I when i leave my house i say to myself life without a net there's no net nobody's catching me but me you know, when kids come up to me and they say, what's your plan B? I go, there's no plan B. There's no plan B. This is my plan. I, I'm not turning around here. I, I'm not planning plan B because A is going to fail. No, no, I'm committed. I'm going life without a net. Okay. And plan B, like I'm confused, right? So I'm once I used to run the Warren Miller tour east of Chicago. I was in charge of 21 cities, arranged all the marketing, all the PR, organized the venues, do all that stuff. I get a call one day in the middle of the summer. It's the intern at Warren Miller. Hey, Mr. Egan. I'm like, I'm in trouble now, right? An intern is calling me Mr. Egan. Uh, my boss told me to call you. Um, we're taking your cities in-house. I go, what? I go, yeah, yeah, thanks for everything you've done. I, I guess you've done a lot for Warren. I'm like, a little bit. He So I go, wait a minute, let me get this straight. You're the intern and you're telling me I'm out of the, I don't get my contract? He goes, yeah, yeah. I go, dude, you're going to get promoted. I go, you're the brightest, bravest kid. I've ever had call me. I go, you're going to go somewhere in life. And uh, thanks for calling. I go, I, I admire you for making the call like that. You don't know who I am, I guess, but uh, it's it's a big thing you just did today. And uh, I, I, I think you're going to go places. And so I hang up. And I'm sitting there going, what would Warren do? Right. Warren Miller and Tim had already fired Warren. They already fired all my friends who were cameramen. There was only a few of us left at the company. And I said, Warren would write a book. You know, if you think, think of all his titles, uh, Lurching from One Disaster to Another, Wine, Women, and Warren, like it's all this sort of like, thing. I, Warren would write a book. And I wrote down the title, White Haze, right then. And I started, I, I wrote the, the, uh, the, the chapters. This is what I would talk about in the book. And all this sort of thing. And I want it to be history because I'm influenced by Stein Erickson and the hot doggers and Wayne Wong and all this sort of thing. So I start writing, but you know, like projects, you know, it's hard to move them forward. Right. And so when John and I were getting inducted into the hall of fame, Eric Wilbur wrote a nice piece about John and Dan for the globe. And uh, later he asked me, had I ever considered a book? And I said, you know, yo, yeah, I've got the title. I'm writing the book. We're good. He goes, you need any help? I go, I don't need any help. You know, I'm, I'm good. But I called him back a year later and said, dude, I need help. And, you know, Eric is great. I mean, he's amazing. And I had 
you know, I'd written on and off for the globe. I'd covered the Sochi Olympics for the globe and, you know, we were super proud to be associated with the, the, the biggest newspaper in the city. And as a kid, that was a big deal for me to be part of the globe. So to have another globe writer recognize that there was a story to tell was great. Eric and I became fast friends and the process was he would, I showed him my table of contents and we used that as a roadmap. And he would ask me, we would interview these uh, tape record our discussions chapter by chapter. And then he would write a chapter, send it to me. I would add things, change things, put in a motion, detail, send it back. And we just volley these things back and forth. Uh, and he always knew it took him a while to realize if I was slow to volley it back, it's because it was emotional for me and I was struggling. He, at first he thought I didn't like it, but it was more that he had hit a chord and I had to spend time with it. So the book was very emotional for me. I, I don't hold back in the book. Uh, I put everything in the book, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, and yeah, my struggles and and overcoming and personal life it's all it's all in there and as you know you know when you when you put those things in the world you know you, you kind of get supported you 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 get held um and uh it affects people in different ways some people can hear it some people can't hear it some people can admit it some can't family members don't want to look at it you know those things like that happen um but for me it was very good uh by the time the book got printed I was sort of through the emotional journey of the book and could look at it objectively. And that helped me sell it and promote it uh, without sort of having my emotions attached to it. Was it, was it cathartic and was there a need for catharsis? Yeah. I, you know, I, I've got so many projects I want to do and I knew that this thing needed to get done for those others to be done. Um, I, I saw this as it was blocking some other things that I want to do, some other trauma books I want to write on trauma. Did I want to write a book about all our lost friends who we've lost over the years from Doug to Paul to Shane to Trevor? I've got, you know, that's now in the works. Um, I wanted to produce a film, a major documentary on my friend's fa father who was first uh, pioneering black soccer player in England. I'm now doing that. So a lot of things got the floodgates open for me because now I was free of my past. I was really, I put my ski career in a box. I put a bow on it. If anybody wants to learn about it, they can read about it, but it's separate from me now. I've, I've, I love skiing. I love what I did with my brother. I love all the stuff. I love all the places we went, but I've, I'm not like so attached to it anymore. And the beginning of that for me was the Hall of Fame induction. That process helped me put my career into perspective, put it into a historical perspective for the industry and my own perspective, what it, how it helped me and hurt me in my life and put it in a place where it belongs. And I'm glad it's being honored. And now to be able to move on feels really good for me. Well, and you can, but you continue to enjoy the sport of skiing. So you skied with a buddy of mine at Sugarbush a couple of winters ago, 
and it was it was just freezing rain. I mean, one of those days that you end up looking like a glazed donut. And 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 he was amazing. He's, you said something to the effect that sounds like a Warren Miller kind of thing, right? The like Warren's quote of the best place in the world to ski is where you're skiing that day. You know, something along those lines. Yeah. And he went, yeah, okay, like this guy's skied all over the world. He's been in movies, he's famous. It's raining. We're the only two on the mountain. And we're still having a great time. Yeah. 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 I mean, I love to ski. And um, I, I still ski. I skied Blue Hills this year. Um, and I, I love to ski. There's, I don't need to be in one location to have a great time. Like, I know how good the snow is in Japan. I'm sure it's great. But I love, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I'll go. I don't know. Like, it's not going to change my life. Nothing, I, none of this, it's not, I love skiing. And what I love about skiing is the people uh, and the place and the journey. And uh, I love coaching. I love seeing people get better. And I'll do that anywhere. Um, I have my favorite locations. Big Sky is amazing. It's great hill. The, the new tram's going to blow people away. And that terrain up there in North America, I don't think there's anything like it. Um, you know, Val d'Azere is my springtime home. Um, but when people ask me why, I, I tell them it's a community. I have friends there. I have godchildren there. I, it's, I go there for five, six weeks. It's home for me. Um, yeah, I coach. Yeah, I guide. But I do that second. You know, I, I'm there to hang out. And, and I, I like drinking coffee at the guide meeting and hanging out with the guides in the morning as much as I like the coaching. So, you know, the, these things you know, it's, it's who I am. And uh, what I love about the ski community is it's a worldwide community. Um, and, you know, I, I, I was in line this year, getting off the chairlift at the top of Val and guy comes up and goes, I skied with you when I was 10 years old. I'm from Scotland. You know, we skied here and there and I have a career now. And, you know, that stuff all feels good. You love to be recognized. Uh, you're glad somebody's got inspired, but, but that connection, is really what was the best bit about it. You know, the memory was the best bit about it. And uh, yeah, so I love saturating myself in that. Yeah. And I mean, that that's such a cool part. And as you're saying with the book as well, it's it's interesting sort of these demarcation points that we that we go through, you know, like first Warren Miller movie had to be had to be one. I mean, it opens up the world. Then you know, then then you go through here, you go through there, you come back, you write the book, you do this. And and, and it is it's kind of it, it is interesting how this works, especially when you are you are responsible for creating your reality. Right. As you yeah. said, you, you don't have a safety net. That that creating that one thing is it's almost like, you know, it's almost like climbing a mountain. We're climbing a mountain, right? It's like that's kind of setting a new anchor in some ways that then there's that anchor and you go, okay, now I'll go on to the next thing, but I'm starting from a higher point in some ways is that, and, 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 and yeah. And then it allows you to keep going, I think is what it sounds like. And I mean, it's some of what I've experienced as well, right. Just in terms of what you do. And so what's, what is, what is what is next? I'd imagine right now there's a lot of publicity for the book. I mean, this is this has got to be the focus. But are you thinking about 
the next step? It says it sounds like you have a ton of projects you want to do. Yeah. What yeah, would- you know, it's I'm happy with the book. You know, we've given it a huge launch. Uh, I still tour with the book and do a lot of speaking around the book. Um, you say huge launch. That's an interesting thing for me. What is what does that mean? How do you do a huge launch? Because the publishing world has changed immensely. Yeah, I mean, it, you you can't just write a book, right? Because nobody's going to take your book to market. Um, and the the bookstores they don't know they have so many titles. So you know we've spent really two or three years now of touring setting up the, the book tours and the book signings, uh, still going to ski shows um, and moving the book forward. And my public speaking, as your public speak, you know, it, you know, so the book's available when my motivational stuff, motivational at the ski shop level when I show up. Um, and, you know, I feel like having seen Warren write so many books, uh, being part of uh, Freedom Found when he launched it, uh, and seeing how he did it. And Warren went to ski areas and signed books. That's what he did. That's what Warren always did. And then we made the ski bum movie. And, you know, the movie really tells, talks about, look, Warren would get excited over the sale of one book. I mean, this is Warren Miller, and he's still doing backflips over one book. I'm the same way. Like every book in the in the universe that goes out there in circulation is great. The older, you know, the further I get away from the publishing of the book, you know, the frequency of the text or the emails are less. But, you know, I still got one this week. Hey, read your book. Loved it. Can we have coffee? You know, those sort of things. Uh, so it's out there. I've since, you know, went back and revitalized uh, All Terrain Skiing. So I've relaunched All Terrain Skiing 2. Uh, this originally came with flashcards before the world of apps and a VHS tape. Now you can get the app on your phone at All Terrain Skiing. It's 32 Drills and Skills, or just go to the YouTube channel. Uh, it's all free um, and and take it there. Um, so that's, you know, I'm happy for those products. They're there. I wanted to do them. I did them. Uh, the new film, Transforming the Beautiful Game, is about racism in, in soccer and football. Uh, Clyde Best is the first Black superstar in the TV era of uh, Premier League from the 1960s on. He played in the first division for West Ham, scored 58 goals. Uh, We're in the middle, probably a year out from finishing that project. Um, It's a hugely important project. It's it's a very challenging project for me uh, to be telling Clyde's story. It's an honor to tell Clyde's story. Um, But we've, you know, just interviewed, you know, some of the legends that he played with, Sir Jeff Hurst, the only guy ever to score a hat trick in a World Cup final, 1966. Harry Redknapp, who's still a big announcer today in England, uh, played with Clyde. Um, Clyde played against Pele five times. Um, you know, it's a, so it's an exciting story. He played in the States. He won a championship with Tampa Bay Rowdy in 1975. Um, it's an important story to tell um, about, you know, the racism then and now. Unfortunately, we still see it now. Um, and a so, guy from Bermuda who went then, to went to the UK as well too. I mean, that's just yeah, just coming from an island to yeah, warm island to a not so warm, oftentimes uh, inhospitable climate on so many levels. I mean, if you want a, a, a guy who's living without a net, he's 17 years old when he leaves the beautiful island of Bermuda 
flies to England. Nobody meets him. He doesn't know where to go. He takes the train, the tube to West Ham stop thinking that's West Ham. He should have got off at Upton Park where the stadium was. He stands in the rain all day. Nobody meets him. And finally, somebody says, you know, are you lost? And he says, well, I'm here for my tryout in West Ham. They're like, well, you're in the wrong place. And he gets introduced to a family that lived around the block. And that was the Charles family who had two players on the West Ham team. And he lived on that couch for eight years. Um, so a pretty amazing story, persevering. And compared to today, where guys are making millions of dollars, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a week, they have player liaisons, people shopping for them, doing their getting them an apartment. You know, Clyde had none of that back then in the 60s. Um, he was the all, not only the only black player on the team, the only black guy in the stadium. You know, they're throwing bananas at him and chanting monkey and threatening to throw acid on him. Uh, he's 17. So it's a great story of perseverance. It's a great story of turning that around to he's he's a legend. He's adored. We just brought him into the Olympic Stadium at the West Ham United West Ham versus Man U game uh, about a month ago. And it was like like going in with Hank Aaron into, you know, into it was amazing. So because uh, that was that's that. the stadium where they had the track and field at the Olympics and Paralympics. Yeah. In yeah. 2012, in yeah, 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 beautiful stadium. Yeah, it is beautiful stadium. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, very cool. Were you there? You were I've there. been to that stop. Yeah, awesome. I was. I was there for that. I was there working awesome. with the International Paralympic Committee as an ambassador and doing announcing and doing stuff like that. So the whole railing around the outside of the park has all the medals and all the everything engraved into the railing of which events and who won it, both mm -hmm. para and Olympics. It's pretty pretty outrageous. Um, and then, you know, Chris, the other book, the, the new project, Dying to Ski, um, you know, 30 of our friends have passed since since the late 80s to now. And unfortunately, with Hillary and others, there's still that, that number is going up. Um, and it's an important book because in project, because it's about trauma and untreated trauma. It's through the eyes of the survivors, the wives, the girlfriends, the the uh, the kids, um, so I mean, Eric and I are excited about that project. Um, partnering with some key major filmmakers today, who have the footage of these guys to to make the movie um, and to really tell that story uh, and, and and the lessons that we take away from the loss of our friends and how to how to enhance our lives, not end them and. So, you know, that that's that's a big project. And, and, you know, look, if there was a union of extreme sports athletes like there is at the NFL, we'd have a clawback on concussions or the things. But we don't. And uh, the companies that have exploited uh, these athletes. Um, yeah, it's a look into that um, and continue to exploit the athletes. Now, of course, they all do it under the guise of competition or the guise of education and sponsorship. But um, look, at some level, when Shane McConkie got off his couch in Olympic Valley to go to his faded last trip, at some level, he said to his beautiful wife and child, hey, I'm going to work. And uh, I'm, get, I'm getting paid. And what's the lure of that? And, and what, you know, so it's a reality you know well. It's a reality I know well. Um, 
And I, I think it's an important thing because to bring a perspective to it, uh, having survived it, you know, we, you and I, we have perspective on these things that look fun, look wild, right? But, but there's a deeper thing to it. it. You know, I always, when people go heli skiing with me or meet me in the Alps and want to go skiing, they're expecting the best day of their life. That's why they're there, right? And that's the beauty of skiing, that today could be the day. It could be untracked powder. You could be in the valley alone. It's going to be epic. That's the lore. But as seasoned professionals, we have to think about the worst case scenario. To You know, we know what could go wrong. And so our job as professionals is to provide the best day experience while avoiding the worst and contemplating that throughout the day. One, it's exhausting. I, I wrote about this in my book in the intro. Look, I've never been in a snowstorm since Elbrus or a fog at sea where I don't go back to Elbrus. Um, and I get anxious and, and I feel the trauma. And it comes and goes. I can't control it. It's waves. And so, you know, these these events stay with us. How we process them and help others is, I think, the way forward and the way out. And I believe you'd believe that. And and so it's important work that we do. And uh, we need to keep doing it. You know, we need to keep doing it because these things are not going away. Um, and as the age of the athletes get younger, the X game athlete, the Olympians get younger. They don't know. And, you know, I'm sure this happens to you. You get approached by a parent, a friend. Hey, my kid, you know, he's got a, he's got an entry to this and that. I'm, yeah, well, that's great. But where are we going here? And, you know, when kids come to me and they say, you know, I'm a pro skier. And I say, well, how do you look at what are you doing that's different from everybody else? I can't tell your flip from another flip. I don't know how many times you twisted. I can't count that many. I don't know what's happening in big air events anymore. It's beyond my comprehension. So you need a judge to notice you and you need public and sponsors to notice you, but you dress the same, you did the same trick. So what's the difference? Cody Townsend and his 50 series on YouTube is a home run. You watch the first episode, you want to watch the next one. It's a guy going on an adventure. There's no format to it. Everyone's different. He meets people along the way. He brings in famous skiers and climbers along the way. And if you go back and you watch his first episode, it's Cody by himself. He's filming himself. A couple of episodes later, he has a cameraman. A couple, you know, season later, he has a sponsor. He's got a car. Like, it's working. And people know 50. When you say 50, oh, yeah, Cody Townsend. So that's not a YouTube account. That's, he's just not some, another guy posting to Instagram, right? He's caught our attention and he understands distribution. That's the essence of it. And if you miss that as an athlete, you have a very short career. Yeah, you, you really do. I mean, but you're talking business there. I mean, it really is. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. This, this is a business. You get to do what you want to do. But if you're going to be around, you have to figure out the business side of being successful and being viable and bringing something new, being unique and and changing, changing the sport to a certain extent and improving it. So, yeah, so cool. I mean, Dan, it's it's been such an absolute pleasure 
to get a chance to talk to you and to learn about your whole, to learn more about your whole experience. And yeah, I mean, it's just absolutely incredible and, and so cool that you're sharing it with more people because people just need to learn more about this. No, I appreciate you, Chris. Thanks, man. I can't wait to ski with you. I know. We'll have to do that. Let's do it. Hopefully we get as big a winter as we did this winter. You might, I'll just be that bump. You, you won't actually see me. I'll just be the, the bump going through the snow, but it'll all be good. I love it, dude. I love it. This will be awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And, and uh, thank you to all of you for tuning in. The greatest gift you can give us is all, as we always say, is to tell your friends, tell your friends, tell your friends, tell, tell everybody, tell people to tune in. Uh, please like us, follow us, and please subscribe. And we will continue to bring you great content. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks a ton. Take care. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.